Thank you. And hey, good morning. It's so good to get together to worship God together and open his word. And so you are going to want a Bible this morning. If you have a Bible, you can go and open up to Romans chapter 6 as we continue our journey through the book of Romans. If you need a Bible, it's fine. Just slip up a hand. We have people walking around with Bibles. They will put a Bible in your hand so that you can follow along there again in Romans 6. But as you're finding your way to Romans 6, a story stuck out to me as I was studying this passage. Uh, in, in 1973, there were four hostages that were taken in a bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden, by two uh, escaped convicts. They came into the bank, they uh, demanded money, and, uh, and they put the, the four bank employees in a cramped vault. Now, what was crazy is that over the next two days of uh, holding these four bank employees captive, they forged this strange bond together with their abductors. In fact, so that at the end of the standoff, as the police stormed the bank with tear gas, the bank employees, the hostages, shook hands, hugged and kissed on the cheek their captors and pleaded for the police to take care of them. It was such a strange phenomenon that we actually termed a name for it called Stockholm Syndrome. Have you heard that before? Where hostages identify with, become emotionally attached to, and sometimes even fall in love with their captors. Now, why do I share that story? Because this week, as we're looking at Romans 6, I think that we have to confront what we could call spiritual Stockholm Syndrome, where we fall in love with, with the, the ways that we've previously been held hostage, in bondage, as slaves to sin. The question we have to ask is, how many of us would rather habitually stay connected to our sin rather than be set free to experience true life in Christ. In other words, we've been set free from death, but do we truly know how to live? We can be forgiven, but have we learned to live free? So let's read this, starting in uh, chapter 6, verse 1, picking up where we left off last week. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. We sang those songs. I, mean, I don't know if you know this, but we're actually super intentional about the songs that we sing. Uh, it's also why we do worship uh, both at the beginning and at the end of, of, uh, of our teaching time, because we believe that, that the proper response to the word is worship. But did you notice the, the words that we sang together? This is what living looks like. This is what freedom feels like. This is what heaven sounds like. We praise you. We praise you. We sang it, but have we lived it? So we ended chapter 5 
with this incredible picture of the ways that, that even despite the invasion of sin that has permeated every aspect of this world in which we live, in every aspect of our lives, relationally, emotionally, yes, spiritually, but also physically, the, the, the creation and us as people in relationship to God, in relationship to one another, that chapter 5 makes this point that, yes, as pervasive as sin, how much more through the second Adam, Jesus, is life invading this world. If sin could do this through the one man, Adam, how much more could the freedom and the life of Christ do in response to what God has done in Christ? But in that, that raises some questions. Because Paul ends with this, with this statement that, that even as much as sin abounded, grace abounds even more. Which then, if you're thinking about it, the question comes up, and Paul very honestly addresses it. I love that about Paul. He's not afraid to dive into anything. He says, so, okay, wait a second then. If the more that sin abounds, the more that grace increases, if we increase sin, does that just mean that grace is that much more? So should we keep sinning so that, great, that we have the, the fullest abundance of grace? And he answers with about the most... Uh, uh, Strong way in the Greek that he could word it by no means If this was in uh, truck driver English there would be some different words used for that sentence By no means no way Why do you not know that that is no longer who you are? That in Christ we have died to sin that part of us is dead. We are no longer slaves to that reality. And that in Christ, we have been set free to walk in a new life. That we have a new identity. There are a lot of commentators that uh, in this passage, passage uh, well, in chapter 5, they recognize the echoes of Eden. In fact, it's pretty explicit in chapter 5, talking about Adam and in creation, given that choice, representing all of humanity, chose to walk away from God, and in blatant disobedience, chose life on his own terms. And likewise, all of humanity ever since has decided to make ourselves king of our lives instead of trusting God, the true king, as kings of our lives and of this world. But in chapter 6, they recognize not just echoes of Eden, but echoes of Exodus. Look back at the very beginning there. Do you see it? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, as Christ was raised from the dead, we might walk in the newness of life Continues on, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul talking to a, a Jewish mixed Jewish and Gentile audience, this picture of, of, of moving through the water from death to life, from slavery to freedom, would have stirred up images of what? Moses leading his people through the Red Sea 
slaves in Egypt making their way into the promised land. And as they move through that water from death into a new life, they are no longer defined by the slavery of their past. But instead, they are now a new people in a new place living into the promises of God as free people. And yet what we find all throughout Exodus and ongoing into the rest of the Old Testament, is what the book of Judges is completely about, is that it was easier to get the people out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of the people. And even as they made their way into the promised land, now free to live under the, the authority of God as their king, there would be times that fear would rise, raise its ugly head. And they would turn to Moses and they would say things like, we were better off back there in Egypt. Have you brought us into the wilderness to die? How are we going to get water? I mean, sure, we were making bricks 18 hours a day, but at least we got a couple sips of, of water at the end of it. I mean, I mean, sure that we were getting our backs beaten by Pharaoh and his guards, but, but at least we had little bricks of, of bread to eat. God's like, I'm leading you into a feast. I, I'm leading you into freedom, but will you trust me? And sometimes it's easier to trust the slave masters that we can see than to trust the God that's leading us into places that we can't yet see. Amen? And so Paul says, this is not who you are anymore. Your primary identity is not a slave to sin. Your primary identity now, your primary marker of who you are as a man, as a woman, is one who has been set free. John 8, 36, Jesus tells the people, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sir Paul is pulling some of this language from. The slave does not remain in the house forever the son, the daughter, remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now in context, that was uh, coming immediately after Jesus had, had told the, the Jewish people who had believed him, listen, if you abide, if you remain, make your, make your home in my word, you'll, you're truly my disciples, my followers. And you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. But they asked, answered him. They said, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved by anyone. How is it that you will become free? Now, it's interesting because, as we just said, that's actually a really stupid statement. We've never been slaves to anyone. Now, every year in the spring, they get together and celebrate a huge feast called the Passover that commemorates how they used to be slaves. But because of God's miraculous deliverance, they are now free. But in their ignorance and their arrogance, they make this statement, I'm a free person. I do what I want. Who are you to tell me that this is the way to freedom? Now, it's easy to mock the people back in Jesus' day, but I wonder how many times we, I, do the same thing to God. How dare you tell me that I'm a slave to anyone? I'm my own man. I make my own decisions. I choose my own way. I make my life work. And even in those statements, really what I'm saying is, I'm still a slave to my sin. I'm a slave to myself. 
I'm a slave to my ambitions. I'm a slave to my desires. I'm a slave to my appetites. And yet God is saying, Jesus invites, abide in me and my word and my truth, and it will set you free. Free to live the life that you were created to live. But as Paul continues, he recognizes that we now have a choice. That in Christ, that, that the old, our old life, our, our, our sin has been crucified with Christ. We are no longer bound by our sin. It has died with Jesus. But we now have a choice. Who will we submit to as king of our lives and our bodies? Romans 6.12 Let not sin, therefore, reign. And we talked about this last week, but that word reign means literally to rule as king. So let not sin, the ways that you fall short of God's glory and purposes, therefore reign, rule as king in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, its desires, its demands. Do not present your members the parts of your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but instead present yourselves, give yourselves over to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members, the parts of your body, to God as instruments, tools for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So Paul recognizes that before, apart from Christ, we had no choice but to obey sin as our slave, as our master. Our appetites ruled us because that is just the, the reality that we lived in, in bondage to this old life. But now in Christ, he's saying you've been set free, but in that freedom, just like the Israelites in the desert, there is still a choice. And so he's telling us, as, as Jesus followers, don't submit any longer to, to king sin, but instead intentionally submit your lives and your bodies to King Jesus. That there's a choice that we make. Now, the, the problem, or one of the difficulties with that choice, is this simple idea that permeates Scripture. That the road that leads to death, actually, it looks like it leads to life. But the road that, that leads to life, it, it looks like it leads to death. And so we end up continuing to move forward in those old patterns and those old ways of, of slaves to our appetites and our desires, our, our sinful demands and selfish living and thoughts. Because in the moment, it feels and looks like life. It feels good. It feels right. It seems best. But that road, the Bible says, ends up in death. But then there's this other road. This way of dying to ourselves and our demands and our flesh and our appetites. And in the moment, it feels like death. And yet, somehow, in the end, it leads to life. A, a couple of years ago, there's a group of men that I was uh, discipling, and, and one weekend we went on an adventure, and I decided to take them up 
uh, to climb the, the highest mountain in the eastern United States. It's called Mount Mitchell and outside of Asheville, North Carolina. And, uh, and, and some of them were excited about it. Some of them were not excited at all about this idea. But they came along. And, uh, and so we're, we're making our way, and we get up. It's, you climb, it's about, I think, a 6,000-foot climb and, uh, that's basically straight up the entire time. And so we're, we're going, and I could just hear them, like, huffing and puffing. And, and, I had, and I had all these plans, like, when we got to the top, like, some really cool, uh, like, I thought, cool ideas, like a moment with God at the top of the mountain. But as we're going up the mountain, the whole time I'm thinking, they hate me. They all hate me right now. That we're going to get to the top of the mountain, and we're not going to have a moment with God. They're going to kill me. Like, literally, it's going to be, this is it. This is the end. It was a good idea, and it died horrible death. Uh, but anyway, so we're going up. I can hear them huffing and puffing and complaining and and, uh, and I knew there was a, a point in the trail halfway there that, uh, that was exactly one mile from a, this creek crossing. And so, uh, and so in my mind, I, there was kind of the illustration was going to be that when we got to that point was to, to pick up a rock and to carry that rock for a mile, uh, for that mile, and, and let that rock represent something you need to let die, something you need to give to Jesus, uh, some sin or some area of, of fear, um, of guilt or, or shame, something that you need to release and tr to, to Jesus, let it die on the cross with Jesus. And so pick that up, let that rock embody that, and then we'll throw it in the stream in a mile. What I didn't realize is that, I mean, I can hear them huffing and puffing and, and like, cussing behind me, great discipleship. And, uh, <laughs> and we get up to, the, to that point uh, where the trail turned. And, and literally, as we get up to this point, uh, one way kind of cut to the left, and it started to go downhill. And it opened up into this bright sunshine, birds singing, beautiful. I mean, like, just bright trail with a slight decline to it. And then the other way, it went right. And it, it went into this, like, thicket of bushes, and it was dark and shadowy, and uh, went straight up. And I could hear them behind me going, please, Jesus, let us go left. Please let us go left. Now, what I knew is, there it is right there. What I knew is that if we went left, we would end up on the other side of the mountain and miles away from where we needed to be. But if we went right and just passed a mile, we would end up where we were trying to go. But in that moment, what looks like the right way? Which trail would you choose? And so Jesus is hold, or Paul is holding out this recognition that, that there is a way forward with God, and you've actually now been set free to make that choice. Before, you just would have would plummeted over the cliff into your death because that's all you knew. You were bound by that. But now you've been set free to live in a new way. But those choices of living into Jesus in the moment aren't always going to feel like the greatest way to live. Is going to go against the way that culture tells you this is what life is. This is how to make yourself have a sense of worth or well-being. This is your identity. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 there's a, a whole new way with me. But listen, this way, this way is actually the road of life. And so Paul then asks this question, or he, he leads into this idea. Of, so what kind of king are we following? And where does following that king lead? King Sin, 
that leads to death and a path of regret or King Jesus that leads to life and a path of wholeness. We'll pick up in verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have now become slaves of righteousness. Now, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. In other words, I'm using these illustrations in the best way that I can to get you to understand this idea. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to even more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification or wholeness, holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? I can remember in college having gone through a kind of a a rough time and some just really poor decisions, hearing that verse for the first time. Maybe for you it's the first time you've read that verse. But just to pause and just to think. Let that question resonate. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? When we look at this life that in the moment, in the past, bound to sin, though we feel like we're living wild and free, what fruit did that actually bear in our lives? Like when I lived for myself, when I demanded that I get my way, when I, when I went full tilt into my appetites, regardless of the cost of the people around me, what fruit did that bear in my life? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification wholeness and its end eternal life for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord now one point I want to make is that some uh, those of you that have grown up in a church environment may have uh, heard Romans taught in a way that it's basically sort of a pathway to heaven And that verse right there, 623, is kind of the the, the pinnacle moment of, you know, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ, heaven one day. But in context, is Paul more concerned about life after we die or life before we die, when we're now no longer set free, or we're now set free from death? the question becomes, what does freedom look like? Elsewhere, Paul will describe it as as no fear of death. These anxieties that that bind us up. Have have you ever traced your anxiety, the things that keep you up at night or your worry, to its farthest end? Like, I'm worried that if I, that on Tuesday morning that I'm going to botch the presentation to my boss. Okay, but what am I really worried about? 
well, I, I'm worried that he's going to hate me and I'm going to get fired. And what, what am I really worried about? Well, I'm, I'm worried that if I'm fired, that, some, that I'm not going to be able to make ends meet for my family. Okay, but what am I worried about? Well, I'm worried that if I'm not able to make ends meet for my family, that, that we're not going to be able to eat. Okay, but what am I really worried about? I don't want to die. The root of all of our fears is death. But what does it look like when we live free from the fear of death? So my boss hates my presentation. So I get fired. So we're struggling to make ends meet. What would it look like to live free from death, from the fear of death? Rooted in love, confident in identity, who you are, not smashed around by the waves of this world trying to tell you this is who you're supposed to be, or all of the attempts to, to curate our life in such a way that the rest of the world thinks this is who we are, but confident in who God has made you to be, who you uniquely are in Christ. In tune with the voice of God. That when I face the inevitable pain of this broken world, I am not alone. And there is a better path forward. What master are we going to submit to? And where does that king lead? I mean, this isn't just interesting theological jargon that we can get the answers right on the next Bible quiz we take. This is about life tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. as you drive to work. About life tomorrow after, uh, on Monday afternoon at 4 p.m. when you're having that conversation with your teenager. About life on Wednesday at 6 as you sit down and discuss a conflict with your spouse. This is about everyday moments of living in the reality that you are set free in Christ because of what he did putting to death the sin of our body, that we might move towards wholeness in him. Eternal life, not just heaven one day. An eternal way of living. The reality is the quality of your life, of my life, is based on the quality of the decisions that we make. And so are you making decisions based on I am a slave or based on I am free? So we can bring the bondage of Egypt with us. So this morning, what have you brought with you? What baggage do you still carry? What do you need to let die? On August 5th, 2010, many of you will remember this, in Chile, a mine collapsed, trapping 33 miners down 200 feet below, sorry, 2,300 feet below the ground. Now, those 33 miners battling starvation, trying to cling to faith and hope, anything to keep them alive, began to divide the little bit of food that they had. A, a, a few cans of tuna and a few cans of peaches and some old water. Now, the rescuers at the top, as this mine collapsed, uh, began immediately to drill holes into the earth, trying to locate 
those miners. After a few days, there was, there was no sign of life, and uh, the, the, the president of Chile at the time began to, to make plans to build a giant cross as a memorial to these 33 miners that were presumed dead. But on August 22nd, 2010, two weeks later, one of the drilling tools emerged from the earth with a note attached that said that all 33 men were still alive. They then began this global effort to rescue these 33 men. There's a, there's a movie about it now. NASA got involved and a capsule that was intended for space was used to, to lower down and bring the men up. We actually have a picture here of, of them. Uh, that's the second man that was brought out. They can see the capsule behind them. Uh, you can go to the next, the next page there. And the world celebrated the freedom of these men that were presumed dead and, and trapped to their death. Now, what was interesting is about a year later, CNN released a, an article, and the headline was, Do the Miners Need a Second Rescue? And what they had found is that, yes, they had been set free from their entrapment. But even being set free, they now carried with them a level of, of trauma and, and mental turmoil that many of them were living still uh, in being tormented by nightmares. One of them had built a, a wall around his house and when asked a high wall around his house. And when they asked him about it, he said, why he did that? He was like, I don't, I don't know. I just thought I was supposed to. They lived in fear that at any moment that they could die because for two months they lived in fear that at any moment they could die. A few years later, struggling with their psychological scars, they had trouble holding down jobs and were now living off government pensions that were less than half of what they were making originally in the mine. One of them was quoted as saying, I'm alive, thanks to God, but I should be doing better. He repeated himself, I, I should be doing better. And even though they were rescued from death, what they were having difficulty with was actually adjusting to life. And I wonder how many of us are in the same boat. And many of us have experienced rescue from slavery to death and sin, but we've not adjusted to learning to live in the full freedom of Jesus and the good works that he set aside for us to walk in. What would it look like to live free? What are you still holding on to? What do you need to let go of? What do you need to let die? And so for some, maybe it is just that initial step of recognizing King Jesus is a much better king and receiving the forgiveness that he offered 2,000 years ago on the cross. And you realize, 2,000 years ago, you weren't even a blip on the radar. And yet in that moment, he died 
that you could be forgiven of everything that you will ever do apart from God's heart and will. Not just to this moment right now. Your entire existence, Jesus knew when he went to the cross. And now, as Paul says, it's a free gift that we receive. But there are many of us, having received that free gift of forgiveness, are being invited now to live into the reality of that forgiveness. How do you need to be set free? So we're going to continue on and, and worship together. That these words, written a long time ago, are living and active and hopefully still resonate as relevant in our lives today. But we want to make space. Thank you. Whether that's to come and to kneel, to receive the forgiveness of God and the salvation of God in Jesus Christ, or to release to him the bondage and the baggage that we've been holding on to, that we can take one step forward in freedom. And we invite you into communion. We'll have some people uh, standing at the communion stations on either side here with the bread and the wine. If you prefer, uh, if you need either gluten-free or the grape juice, we have baskets with the, with the cups in there uh, in the back of the room that if you prefer, take communion on your own that way. But in communion, regardless of whether the bread or the cup or the packet, the, symbol, the symbolism is the same. The reality is still the same. That Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took that bread of the Passover and said, this bread is my body given for you. Take and eat, and every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And that reality that Christ gave himself, that we could be reunited, reconnected to God our Father in heaven, and that the reality of the bread as we take that into our mouth is as real as the presence of Christ in us, for us. And then Jesus took that cup, the cup of the Passover, the cup that was representing the, the blood of the lamb that was shed, that, that set the people out of free, out of free out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. And he took that cup that they had held up for thousands of years, remembering the deliverance of God, and said, this cup, is my, my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins the blood of a new covenant of new relationship with God take and drink and every time you do this do this in remembrance of me that in this present moment on October 2nd 2022 the reality of the blood of Christ the forgiveness of God is available to you that is just as real as this moment as it was 2,000 years ago as Jesus gathered in that upper room. And so when we take communion, Paul says that we don't do so lightly, but to search our hearts, to be honest, to confess with God, what do we need to give him? What do we need to be honest about? Where do we need to receive forgiveness? And then we enter into that powerful faith act of recognizing and receiving the body and the blood of Jesus Christ as an act of worship. We'll sing together. We'll pray together. Our prayer team would love to pray over anything going on for you. And let's receive what God might have for us this morning. So Lord, we thank you. God, we thank you that in Christ, 
You didn't just forgive us. You set us free to live a new life, a true, abundant life, the way that you designed us to live in fullness and in freedom. And so, Lord, will you move us towards that holiness, that wholeness, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, mentally, physically? Will you move in miraculous ways by your Holy Spirit even this morning in our lives? That we can simply receive what you have already done and live in the truth of that reality. In your precious and powerful name, the name of Jesus, we pray.